Friends, good morning. Before we dive into our message for today, I want to let you know of some of the changes we're making to our Sunday mornings. Firstly, from next week, we're going to be streaming a full service via YouTube and Facebook. We'll be sending out more information via our website, uh, Facebook and the weekly email, and hopefully you'll be able to connect online with that. The sermons will still be available via our podcast and on our website as they are at the moment. But as we approach Pentecost at the end of this month, we'll be moving into a slightly different phase in terms of our mission and ministry, and I'm excited by that. As part of our changes and adjustments, we're now going to be finishing our Stretching the Kingdom series next week rather than uh, into June. And that will be followed by Pentecost Sunday on the 31st. And then after that, we're going to be beginning a four-week series exploring the book of Ruth together. Now, just before we begin with today's sermon, I'd also like to thank uh, Pastor Fred for his sermon last Sunday. It's always so helpful to reflect on prayer together. Thank you, Fred. And so over these past weeks, and if you haven't had a chance, I'd encourage you to go back and catch up via the website. Over these last weeks, we've been exploring God's call to our church to enlarge our tent, to be resolute in loving and blessing others, and to make a space for all to come and find faith and follow Christ as part of our church community. And when we do that, it involves new ideas and new people, that it pushes us, it disturbs us, it leads to lots of questions and requires us to work at discerning the way forward together. And a core part of that discernment has to involve the Bible. So let's turn to our readings for this morning. Our Old Testament reading is from Psalm 25, beginning at verse 1. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. And our New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm beginning at verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together this morning be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning in our Stretching the Kingdom series, I want to turn more directly to God, the church, and our LGBTQ sisters and brothers. Today, as we all do, we as we gather together, even in these days in our own homes, and I so look forward to being back worshipping with you all at some point, we have LGBTQ worshippers as part of our community, regular members of our congregation, as well as newer faces. Over these past months, as our church has attempted to work through some of the questions we're looking at this morning together, some of you have made a point of letting me know how relieved you feel that we can talk openly about this in church. 
But I know there will be others of you that are still anxious about the way forward. And I pray that God will fill you with peace at this very moment. You are not an issue. You're not a cultural phenomenon or a topic for debate. You are a child of God with the image of God stamped across your life. And I can't imagine our church without you. But I imagine it's not just our LGBTQ folks that are feeling a bit anxious this morning. I know that. I know that some of you fear being labelled as homophobic when mostly what you're trying to do is be faithful to the word of God as you understand it. I pray that God would fill you with peace at this very moment too. You're a child of God with the image of God stamped across your life and I can't imagine our church without you. Some of you, I would guess, without knowing what I'm going to say this morning, are anticipating being told that the right way to think is this or that. But friends, it's an unhelpful claim that any of us are 100% absolutely no room for error sure of the mind of God on almost any subject, much less one as complex and tangled as this. What is true is that we as a church value our big tentness but holding that together isn't always easy. This particular subject has been divisive in the church, not just in ours, but across the world, because God-honouring, Jesus-fearing, Bible-believing Christians come to this conversation, bring the scriptures with them, and walking away with very different perspectives. And before we go any further, just a note about language. Words are important. Language matters. I try to use the language my LGBTQ friends use to describe themselves, and that's not easy because it isn't uniform. They're not a homogenous group. People use a variety of terms, gay and lesbian, LGBTQ, which stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning or queer, so the Q can be taken either way. Some generally younger gay people prefer to identify themselves as queer, reclaiming that word from its previous insulting nature. But every label, however I talk about it, will always have its shortcomings and won't work for everybody, and I'm aware of that. And to be clear, this sermon or this series is not a comprehensive gathering of everything there is to be said about homosexuality in the church. We've spent months as a community discerning this together and still there is loads we could say what it is is a modest sermon a modest series from a straight white almost middle-aged baptist pastor who loves being a follower of jesus loves the bible and loves the church who has some perspective to share finite as that may be and as I do that, as I have right throughout this process over recent months, I do feel the weight, the significant weight of responsibility to you and accountability to God, just as I do every time I come to preach. I would think that this whole thing has had more than a decade long gestation period for me, which as I look back now, almost certainly began with a Christian friend who was grappling with their sexuality. When you're a pastor, especially one who preaches Jesus and the gospel of grace, some people will come and share things with you, and that is an awesome privilege. And there's lots of reasons to be working through this together and why it seemed like the right time for us to be doing this. 
It's a deep matter of justice for many of us. It is integral to how we engage with our community, how we think about mission, uh, particularly if we want our church to be um, open to people under the age of 35 exploring things of faith. But always part of our thinking has to be the Bible and what it says to us. We're a community for whom the Bible has real authority as God-breathed revelation of God's heart and God's will and God's way. Of course, we do have a more perfect revelation of God than this book in the person of Jesus. He stands above all scripture and all our interpretations and applications of the Bible have to be judged and weighed by what we know of him. And there are other things that are helpful too, particularly hearing the stories of LGBTQ Christians. I know many of you have found it helpful reading Vicky Beeching's book and hearing from Jane Ozan, who we were privileged to have share her story with us in person earlier this year. But still, the Bible is a crucial guide for us. And as followers of Jesus, we're compelled to read it and know it and be shaped by it. It would be no good to suppose uh, same-sex relationships and everything is all good simply by laying scripture to one side in order to do that. We've got to do better than that. I want to begin helping us do that uh, work of getting to a better place by reading out a list of instructions from scripture this morning. And I'm grateful to uh, our friend Julie Pennington-Russell in Washington for this exercise and for her help in this whole conversation and grateful for all the other uh, ministers and friends who have taught me so much and grateful to have walked this journey with Elizabeth too. Her wisdom has been deeply, deeply helpful over these last months. As these instructions, as you hear them, I want you to think about whether the instruction from Scripture is still uh, relevant and in force for us today, completely as it is stated, whether it is still relevant and in force for us partly or in some sort of modified way, or if you think it no longer applies to modern living. So, you ready? Is it full on? Is it modified? Is it not relevant anymore? Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. It's Leviticus 19.19. Completely for today, partly for today, no longer for today. What do you think? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 27. Do not spread slanderous gossip among our people. Leviticus 19, 16. Go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. You're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. That one's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Or how about this one? Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. That's 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Any man who isn't circumcised hasn't kept his promise to me and cannot be one of my people. Genesis 17, 14. Punish your child with the rod and save his soul from death. Proverbs twenty three fourteen. Heal the sick, 
raise the dead, drive out demons. Matthew 10, verse 8. Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Proverbs 31, 6 to 7. And love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12, 31. There's lots more examples we could have used, but hopefully you'll see just from that list how moving from the ancient text to our contemporary world isn't as simple as it might at first seem. It isn't just a case of reading something in the Bible, lifting it totally out of its context and placing it into whatever our current context is. It's more complex and challenging than that. And uh, acknowledging and working with that complexity and that challenge is to honour scripture. It is more honouring of scripture to wrestle with it honestly in this way. Now, as we turn to texts that directly relate to our LGBTQ conversation, the first thing that we find is that the texts in scripture are scarce. Homosexuality is not mentioned in the Ten Commandments or in the Gospels. What we have in the Bible that addresses this subject is a story from Genesis, similar to a one in Judges, two brief texts from Leviticus and three brief references in the New Testament letters written by the Apostle Paul. So let's start with the Old Testament. First, we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Two angels come to visit Abraham's nephew Lot in the city of Sodom. Whilst they're in his house, the men of the town come to the door and say, bring them out so that we can have sex with them. And Lot refuses. Though oddly and appallingly, he tells them he'll send out his two virgin daughters and says, do whatever you like with them. The men grow more threatening and the angels strike them blind. Most scholars on both sides of the inclusion discussion are agreed that homosexuality is not the sin of Sodom. The prophet Ezekiel identifies the sin of Sodom as pride, greed, laziness and refusing to help the poor. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah as a judgment on inhospitality. And there's this parallel story in Judges 19. A Levite and his concubine are guests in an old man's home. Strangers come and demand the Levite so that they can rape him. But the old man gives them the concubine instead and they abuse her all night and eventually she dies. Now, as an aside here, it's not our focus for this morning, but if the treatment of women in these texts doesn't make you angry and upset, I'd humbly suggest that you've missed something about what's going on here in these passages. But these texts are about power and about violence. It's impossible to make any blanket judgment about homosexuality based on these texts. These are not stories about homosexuality in any general sense. They are acts of rape and violence and lust and abuse, and they are condemned and rightly so. Next, we have Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And Leviticus 20.13 repeats, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They should be put to death. Their blood is upon them. These two verses in Leviticus are the only stated prohibitions against same-sex behaviour in the Old Testament. They're part of what is often referred to as the Holiness Code, 
which lays out all of the ways in which the people of Israel are commanded to be separate in their practices from the surrounding nations. The code includes laws against crossbreeding of cattle, against planting two kinds of seeds in one field, against wearing two kinds of fabric, against eating barbecued ribs, which is called an abomination, toivah, the same word as applied in the text referring to a man lying with a man as with a woman. The issues with taking certain parts of the holiness code and applying them directly while setting others aside without too much thought are many. I think it's fair to say that once Jesus comes along and the church is founded neither 2,000 years ago nor today, has it ever been simple enough just to quote a passage from Leviticus to settle a matter of Christian morality? It's far more complex than that. And it's worth noting as well that the Jewish tradition itself has never simply read these Hebrew texts simply at face value. Instead, our Jewish friends engage with them through a, a deep and long tradition of question and discussion. So let's turn to the New Testament. I realise we're not dwelling with any one text for a huge amount of time, but I'm hoping to cover a big amount of ground this morning. There's so many helpful books out there if you want to do further reading. I know many of you have read Changing Our Mind by David Gushy. There's great stuff out there that many of you have found helpful by Karen Keane and Ken Wilson and Matthew Vines and a whole lot more. And I'd be happy to lend you any of the texts that I have or make sure you get a copy of anything else that would help you. Now, the New Testament does make reference to same-sex practice in three places. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is listening, or listing rather, a catalogue of vices that generally describe the fallenness of the world. And he does an interesting thing. He starts the list in chapter 5, verse 11, with these six. The sexually immoral, greedy, slanderers, idolaters, drunkards and swindlers. So that's in the chapter before the reference to same-sex practice, which comes in chapter 6. So he repeats um, the list from the previous chapter, and then he adds to that in chapter 6, adulterers, those who are effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, and thieves. Now, Virgin says it's not a definitive list of sins. He leaves out liars and murderers, for example, and other serious things. It's not a definitive list, it's a sampling. And it's not until the second uh, giving of the list that what appears to be homosexual behaviours are added. In Galatians 5, Paul gives a longer list of 15 vices and doesn't include anything relating to same-sex conduct at all. In verse 9 of chapter 6, Paul uses two words, malakoi, sometimes translated as effeminate, which generally means soft and which has carried a range of meanings over time, but basically was an all-purpose Greek word that evoked effeminacy. Uh, Greek male culture contrasted tough, courageous men who worked outside the house with the softer, fearful women who lived inside. The other particularly relevant word Paul uses is ar- arsenokoitai. Do you know I apologise for the pronunciation. I promise I got over 90% in my New Testament Greek exam at college, but I don't get to use it very often. Anyway, this word, Paul uses it twice. And it's quite possible that Paul created it. There are no examples 
in literature of the word before Paul uses it. It seems to be a sort of combination of man and bed, which has led to the conclusion by some, by many, that it refers to homosexual acts. One problem for us when it comes to interpretation is that the most reliable way to define a word is to analyse the way it's used in as many different contexts as possible. But this word only appears three times in two documents over a period of three centuries. And two of those instances are in these passages in the New Testament. It's probably worth noting that most English Bible translations prior to the 20th century didn't render Malachi as effeminate and instead translated those references as a general warning against promiscuity. Still, scholars today disagree with each other about what these two words really mean, and I suspect the debate will go on for some time. Another New Testament text is found in 1 Timothy 1, and like the Corinthian passage, it's another catalogue of vices, with 14 words listed, including the ungodly, the unholy, those who kill their parents, the sexually immoral, slave traders, liars, arsenokotoi. Now, you know, the word I'm struggling, so I've I've not struggled with this before, how bizarre, and so on. Perhaps the most significant and disputed text, however, is to be found at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Even though these two verses are not of central importance to Paul's message in Romans, he's using it here as a brief example to make a broader point about idolatry. At the same time, these two verses, he describes uh, lustful same-sex relations between men and likely between women as well. And his words are undeniably negative. It reads, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The text is part of a large point that the Apostle Paul is making about turning away from God and worshipping idols. And even that is secondary to his main point. His main point in the beginning chapters of Romans is that no one is righteous. He's in the process of showing how every person on the earth is broken and in need of grace. He says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that God in Christ has given grace because we're all in need of grace. Our verses are part of Paul addressing the sin of idolatry, turning away from God and worshipping idols. He says then that God gave the people who took this path over to their own choices and the consequences of them. And this is where I think it's worth pointing out the distinction between Paul's discussion about same-sex behaviour and conversations now about gay Christians. Paul appears to assume that these folk were capable of heterosexual attraction and therefore were choosing unnatural relations. Paul lists 21 different vices in verses 18 to 32, including envy, murder, deceit, gossip, slander, arrogance and so on. In each vice, humans are capable of making the opposite virtuous choice. Instead of giving in to envy, we can choose to be grateful for what we have. Instead of hating, we can choose to love. Instead of gossiping, we can choose to talk directly to someone. 
Paul's rhetoric about same-sex relations fits this pattern. Rather than following same-sex attractions, we can follow opposite-set attractions. But as the failure of organisations trading in supposed conversion therapy shows, this isn't how it works for LGBTQ people. As author Matthew Vines puts it, gay people cannot choose to follow opposite-set attractions because they have no opposite-sex attractions to follow, nor can they manufacture them. Regardless of how you ultimately interpret these passages, one thing seems virtually certain. That the lustful, fleeting behaviour that Paul is describing is fundamentally different from what we are talking about together. Paul makes no mention of love and fidelity and monogamy and commitment. And that is the context into which we are seeking to engage and speak. At the very least, it's important to note that Paul is not singling out gay people for condemnation. He's making the point that we all need the grace of God. You know, next week we're going to finish our Stretching the Kingdom series by looking at Acts 15 together. But for now, I want to leave you with a story from church history. 400 years ago, in December 1614, an influential Italian monk named Tommaso Caccini stood before his congregation in Florence and launched a strong attack on a new idea that he said was repugnant to the divine scripture and to the Christian faith. After quoting from the Old Testament to make his case, Caccini said that those who defended this idea were colluding with the devil and should be banned from the country. I imagine that Brother Caccini would be astonished to learn that churches today embrace as indisputable truth the very thing that he condemned as heresy, which was Galileo's claim that the earth does in fact revolve around the sun and not the other way round. You see, for the first 1600 years of church history, every major Christian leader and theologian believed that the earth was the centre of the universe and they based that belief on what the Bible said. So in Psalm 93, it reads, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Or in Ecclesiastes 1, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises, thus proving that it's the sun that moves. But as settled as that issue seems now, church authorities in Galileo's day rejected his arguments. The Roman Catholic Church condemned uh, his position as formally heretical because it explicitly contradicts sentences found in many places of sacred scripture according to the proper meaning of the words and according to the common interpretation and understanding of the holy fathers and of learned theologians. But the problem with Galileo's claim was not simply that it ran counter to their interpretation of the Bible. It ran contrary to everyone's interpretation for 1600 years of church history. And you know, friends, Christians didn't change their minds about the solar system because they lost respect for the authority of scripture. They changed their minds because they were confronted with evidence that their predecessors had never considered. Their telescope didn't lead Christians to rejecting scripture. It simply led them to clarify their understanding of scripture. And I hope that you're getting the links between this story and our our conversation. Um, It is perfectly possible to be totally devoted to Jesus Christ and to the importance of scripture and take an inclusive position on uh, sexuality. 
And so now what? Well, we'll take our cue from the early church next week. Whatever you think about this conversation and what I've shared today, I want to tell you how grateful I am that because of the love of Christ alive here in our community and the spirit at work in you, we can discern and journey through this together. None of us knows fully where God is leading uh, us and of what God intends for our future. But these words from Augustine ring as true today as they ever have. Whoever therefore thinks that they understand the divine scripture or any part of them so that it does not build the double love of God and of our neighbour does not understand it at all. Grace and peace to you, my friends. See you soon.